I'm Emily Kyle, and this is Local. This is a conversation with Hobart-based visual artist and musician, Timothy Hodge. This episode was recorded in January during Tim's residency at Cubank Gallery. Since this time, Tim has become an invaluable collaborator, and more importantly, an excellent friend. Usually we always start from the beginning of you. So um, <laughs> where you were born, what your family was like, where you grew up. Mm-hmm, what's mm-hmm. Where does Tim start? Well, essentially grounded in nature really. I mean some of my first memories uh, being down by the river where we had a vegetable garden because we lived out the back of Somerset. I had two brothers, two sisters. 30 acres, that was, my father was a pretty good uh, earth builder. He'd previously built a little sort of, um, yeah, there's the train, fantastic. <laughs> Trains. He'd built a little um, vertical clad house down in Lady Bay as his first house, which is outside of Southport. And they decided to move up to the back of Somerset because my grandfather was heavily into forestry and sort of owned the majority of this road that they ended up on Back Cam Road and vast tracts of land. And he gave them their 30 acres and just wanted to give it to them because uh, he had so much and the council's all like, oh, no, there needs to be some kind of monetary transactions. And my dad's, here's a dollar. So oh. is, <laughs> just so they could cover the administrative side of the there having been some kind of fiscal exchange for the land. Of course. Um, so, yeah, so he was given that land through extreme uh, fortuitousness and we all grew up there. That's so, beautiful. Yeah, long story but basically grounded in nature because there was that vegetable garden down there. There was like... We had a Series 2 Land Rover that would go up and down this crazy bumpy road to get down to the river flat. I'd always be running around with my brothers and sisters, sort of. We had various games in the bush called like survival and cave hunting and cubby house <gasps> building. And we didn't do Spotlight. Oh. No, no. That I was feel the, like that's that was a quintessential the, Australian child game. I don't know how we avoided that one. I guess we weren't hanging out with enough rural lads. I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, and incidentally in all of that, that brings up another pretty – core theme which is I went well there's a few core themes in that which says you know raised quite um I guess heavily isn't the appropriate term but in a very um saturated Christian environment where everything was through that belief system and through that speech community in sort of one aspect or another um and I was homeschooled as well so from the year three through to year 10 my mother took care of the education through a kind of a, an independent curriculum that stems from America that's sort of a self-paced kind of curriculum that's full of full of Bible verses and has a pretty, you know, lots of parts of it that were quite good. Like the English was really good. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a basically good, robust education that I got and I went on to do university and things like that out of it. But in terms of how I was raised, it was, um, it was kind of one world. 
Mm. It was one really kind of, not an empire unto itself because we're always hanging out with other families and going to church and doing all that kind of thing. But there was that really distinct sense growing up that we were sort of a world unto ourselves in our own sort of type of you were aware mini, of mini the tribe. removal. Yeah, I was aware of the removal and the sense of separation. And I guess sort of uh, like a lot of things in my art practice, I've sort of tried to take those attributes and translate them into something that works really well for example you know that sort of sense of being relatively removed from mainstream doctrine of thought in society <laughs> in all sorts of different ways this is like you know led to me being a pretty free thinking and independent artist that's you know happy enough to do something like what i've just done at qbank where i'm hanging out on my own for four weeks working intensely and you know the mm. education that i got was a lot like that we're sort of just hanging out with your brothers and sisters doing the work enjoying nature it was a kind of a good simple grounding in a certain way that fed really well into you know the the rigors of doing a lot of work that people may or may not care about kind of thing which is mm. the art life yeah it's it's interesting to think of a strong christian childhood resulting in this highly spiritual um, free-thinking person that mm. uh, that you are, that you so clearly are. Mm. It's um, those ties to see that there is a connection between um, religion and the experience that you have now as an adult is um, mm. unusual and very interesting. Well, I think I think one way or another in neurology, what enters uh, and what enters is a strong influence. It needs to keep on adapting and transforming itself in one way or another. And you know, I, I got to a point where I was. 13 or 14 where I could no longer comprehend the notion in any logical terms of a, an all-knowing being that was aware and in charge of anything to do with the way that human civilization has sort of progressed itself because that's, you know, clearly the work of uh, chaos and human thinking as much as any kind of intervening <laughs> deity. <laughs> um, to come back to your point, I sort of, because that was such a big influence, I made the choice quite early not to ignore that or to walk away from that or to bury that in the ground, but to instead try and re-essentialise that in some way that was more of a personal connection to what I'd learnt to think was the divine because if you've encountered that in your consciousness, you can't just sort of mm. pretend it didn't happen in some way. Absolutely. And so it has to evolve into something else. And to me that feels neither more or less necessarily than what my parents chose to do. I mean, I prefer my ideology well, I to theirs. Yeah, of course, exactly. <laughs> our our personal that, belief system. And I think that that touches on the nature of belief. It's only as much as you can sort of muster for yourself as an individual. And they did their version and I've done my version. And it's sort of, I mean, when I was at university, for example, you know, I sort of, um, when I was doing my English degree, I spent a huge amount of my time just in the Barsmith Library and what I still remember in the Huey Decimal System was 323.5 through to 324.9, which is the comparative religion section. And I just absorbed as much as I could about Buddhism and Kabbalism and um, communism and just mm. any doctrine of human thought that seemed like it was more interested in the human endeavour of conversations with kindness. And, you know, oh God, I love that yeah. conversations, conversations with kindness, mm. and that's that's the thing that stayed with me to my whole life. I mean, you know, uh, one of my favourite bands that I've seen at a few different festivals and bumped into the lead singer at the airport. I didn't talk to him because he's too intimidating. Michael Gira from Swans, this like huge guy in so many different ways. Um, 
and they, you know, summon this almost religious type worship environment with this repetitive, clanging, minimalistic, overwhelming type of music that they produce and the kind of, and the feelings of that are the same to the feelings that I would get when I was at church, just in a completely different way and with like a, a different mindset producing different sounds. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, we have spoken previously about I'm sorry, I only brought that sound. up because their album is To Be Kind. I forgot why I even got onto <laughs> that. That was their latest album is To Be Kind and that's a big part of their doctrine. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's perfect. We have previously spoken about about sound, sound in mm. general. Um, and before you, because that's stayed in my mind, before you came over today, I was talking to uh, Lance, who's staying here at the mm. moment, about... This um, song, I don't know if you remember the, the band Animal Collective. Yeah, very much. Yeah, ways. and mm. I think that they're, I, I want to say that album was like 2010, uh, around that, that time. That, Strawberry Jam? No, the one before. I've, yeah. God, I can't remember. Yeah. But the first track on that album, Into the Flowers, mm. you know, thinking this jumping point with you about, about sound and the influence mm. that sound has, you know, I think back mm. on that song and when I played it again today, the same experience. It was mm. transcending. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Yeah. The first time I heard it, I couldn't awesome. stop hearing it. Yeah. And I mean, and that's fixed in time in a certain type of way. That's why we can go back to music that we've loved, that has created that unified, transcendent self of like being in some, I don't know, freer, higher aspect of the mind that's mm. encoded in the memory of the sound of the experience. And, you know, so much of what I try and do as a musician and as an artist is keep that that aspect of the mind continually reinvigorated and made connection with to the point that it's just a part of your being because I think that's so much of what um, sound has to offer is this sort of this, um, this ecstatic condition that one way or another is the fundamental basis of human experience, whether it's through transcendental meditation or whether it's through trying to get on top of your trauma or trying to listen to as much good music as you can, like things that make us feel like we're connected to the bliss of the first experience is something that like music continually uh, refreshes for us. I think that's Absolutely. why it's so, so, so important. Can we Just, talk a little about how sound and music uh, impacts, I mean, because your, your background is predominantly as a musician, mm. but you've um, you really moved into this visual landscape that mm. is fascinating and you can see in the work mm. the influence of sound. Mm. It's all one body to me these days and kind of mm. has been for a long time. I mean, I've always been developing my art with my music and my music with my art and they've always been in conversation with each other, especially in terms of like common philosophy and common intention kind of thing. And, you know, I mean, I've done experiments, for example, in very literal terms of getting contact mics onto my canvas and then turning that into sound art that then gets played at an installation of the paintings that were the, the source sound through the, the hitting on the, the making of the painting kind of thing. And that's just an illustration to sort of try and describe that. I, I, I love that integrated stuff. I mean, I love integration wherever mm. I, I find it, like whether it's integrating with old memories in a new way and going through that kind of personal hauntology or whether it's, um, you know, uh, the feeling of making a landscape painting being similar to the feeling of driving through that landscape, listening mm. to music that you love kind of thing. Just anything that helps cancel the aesthetic differences I'm really excited by, especially, you know, trying to be interdisciplinary and, 
And, and I think that all stems back to what we started talking about, which was growing up in a heavily controlled environment in lots of different ways mm. to sort of do the whole kind of human psychology aspect. It's, um, it's because it was so heavily controlled. I learned the joy of um, combining lots of different forms in lots of new ways was my sort of reactionary appetite to that in yeah, lots of ways. Yeah, it does. It feels like this drive for experimentation, but it also feels like this need for immersion to be completely mm, immersed exactly. in the mess of it. Yeah, that's kind of one of the top five words that I would use. So that's a really well-chosen word, mm. absolutely. Because, I mean, I love things that are beyond words. I am, I'm clearly a lover of language, but I like things that go beyond language. And I think that's where a lot of language itself finds its roots. You know, we all evolved one way or another out of a phonetic system and the patterns of sound and the phonetics of language and the intention of language are just sort of like, um, it's a way of keeping that sense of immersion. Like when you're not too worried, like, I mean, I'm getting a bit lost in my own thoughts there for a second, but you know, I like to Create a space that feels boundless is what I try and occupy when I'm making the work and then I hope that is in some way encoded in the work as it comes out is that boundlessness and that immersion that you're talking about mm. very much. Which can sometimes be, you know, speaking of control and, and confinement, mm. when you're looking at something and we think about the work that you produced uh, for well, while you were in residency at QBank, mm. you know, there are there – are, limitations and boundaries there, mm, you know, just always. just in the it's idea on a wall. Yeah, mm. exactly. And you definitely worked with that with um the you had a couple of installations that that beautiful it was the the fire that was sort of suggestive of a fire, but for some reason mm. when I was looking at it and these gorgeous psychedelic colours mm. it felt so much more like a nest than it did yeah, something that was very insightful a place. Yeah. That's right. It's more of the um, it's more of the just the the ground of what gathering feels like, whether that's mm. around a fireplace relaxing together, or whether that's in the rhythm of a good conversation, or whether that's at a gig where you feel like you're letting go. Like the fire that I made on that floor was deliberately psychedelic because I wanted to say how psychedelic the act of actually coming together and sharing mm. minds in an open way actually truly is. Because, I mean, the whole notion of psychedelia at its heart is really just that you're sort of, you're saturating your senses to the point that you're going beyond your senses. And we can do that, with sure, with using hallucinogenics or you can do that just by putting yourself into very regular bouts of being immersed in what you're doing. And you can do it also by um, like being really open and loving and sort of into other people, you yeah, know. Absolutely. And that's that's what the, that's why I put it on the floor. It's like it's a it's a flat thing, that mm. Mm. and that was really nice to see amidst all of these I mean really what you achieved here was quite prolific in the amount of work that you were mm. able to produce in this time. Mm. A month is such a sm small mm. amount of time. Yeah. And, um, yeah, to see the the walls of of the gallery just... Ablaze. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, all of this colour and, mm. you know, we, we spoke previously um, about the word noise, but that's what some mm. of the work feels like. Mm. It feels like distraction and, and noise that you mm. and you try to pinpoint one particular aspect of the work mm. 
but it just but you sweep it's away. There's movement yeah. and yeah. Um, that's noise. The, the liminality, like of what I try and do. That's why I try in a lot of my compositions to not make too much of a fixed point. There's also perhaps an old habit in a lot of that that perhaps should be let go of in relation to the notion of noise to sort of. And also bring it back to psychedelia to overwhelm people with the amount of information that is there that they're sort of in that imperceptible moment of going like, whoa, what am I actually looking at? What is mm. that? In that nanosecond of imperceptibility, I hope to sort of create an, an opening in people's minds through that level of saturation. And I don't know if that's always the right way to do, you know, there is no right or wrong way with mm. that, of course, but... It's just as effective to leave space as it yes. is to load things up with and, information. And, and it's we just as about... effective to be didactic as it is ambiguous sometimes, mm. you know. And I'm trying to walk the line of that balance a little bit more, with, my, especially my collage approach where you can kind of put most things in in this sort of stream of consciousness mm. way I have of assembling things. Well, that's what was particularly interesting about the piece with the, um, the child mm. in the upper left corner yeah. and and all of this white space on the opposite side. Mm -hmm. I think for me, I'm, I'm trying to recall all of the pieces, but that seemed to be the one with the, the most space. Absolutely. And that was, that was interesting too in the light of what I was talking about earlier with how so many different things can make you feel like you're a part of the unified field of how interconnected life actually is. That piece has so much space in it only because someone who was becoming a friend walked into the gallery, had a conversation with him about that space that was much more rewarding to me than a previous conversation I'd had with somebody else that felt a lot more closed in certain types of ways. And, and that conversation <coughs> allowed the piece to remain as it was because he's like, I love that amount of space. I don't think it needs anything else in it personally. And I, you know, I'm really open to people's thoughts and criticisms about what I'm up to. And he sort of, he finished the piece off for me and now he can have it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Mm. Yeah, there's something really beautiful about an exchange of ideas. I think so often mm. artists we, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to know the answer. We mm. are the creator. We are the, mm. The, mm. the great god of the work. Yeah, and, yeah but and we that can be so... are the creator and that's what I've learned. Yeah, you know, I've absolutely. always been really open source. I mean, at art school, I, was, I don't know how to say this without saying accidentally a bit arrogant, but at a few points I was probably a little bit more um, advanced with technique knowledge and diversity of technique and things like that. And some of the people that are a bit younger than me at art school would always be like, oh, how'd you do that? What's it about? And half the time would be sort of be expecting me to be a bit closed about that. And I'm always like, thank you for asking. Mm. This is why I did it. This is how you do it. This is what it's about. And one way or another, I believe that because I think that's, you know, it's essentially getting away from the entrenched ideology of Western civilization that says everything is about ownership one yes. way or another and your yes. value is about ownership and mm -hmm. your identity is about ownership. And I think for, for the global collective human mass to have any kind of hopes of survival, we need to let, let that go and become more about discourse and develop more flat hierarchies and <laughs> sort of just, you know, stop worrying about power structures so much and get a lot more open about think tanking anything into a new resolution without bias and without politics so that we can refine systems that are going to stop us from being annihilated you know and we're well, at that point we and we're still arguing with each other I know. <laughs> and if we can't if we can't share ideas or thoughts about art with mm. each other 
then how on earth are we going to share thoughts mm. and ideas on <clears throat> money yeah. and distribution yeah, of different wealth? different wealth distribution and, or universal income. Yeah, exactly. Or like what we're going to do in the new age of automatism when employment is probably no longer a phenomenon within a generation or two. Like there's all these, you know, exciting ideas going on in this like dangerous but exciting time. And, you know, I don't want to swerve on the side of the negative because I can never really see that much of what's going on out there in public discourse. But there's so often, there's not, I want to be open to your idea that you're presenting to me. There's the uh, defend, attack, criticise mm. type approach that just doesn't um, doesn't provide uh, love or newness. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's very... Um Oh, again, ownership, ownership of ideas. Mm, that, exactly. That's not something that can It's the cult of self. Exist. Like we've been in this sort of yeah. cult of self in so many different ways and we've been taught that by a capitalist system that encourages and endorses the idea of it's okay to do something that makes somebody else suffer if it benefits you in one way or another. Mm. We've all been sort of bathed in that doctrine for centuries and it's yeah, sort of- climb the ladder, climb the ladder. Mm, mm. And we use all sorts of protective things around that, like, you know, uh, behave expectations, like there's, there's behavioral expectations, at the top economic for expectations. Everyone. Yeah. When there's there's plenty of room for everybody if we could just create an open table that's actually an open table that's like working properly like that. And that's you know, that's why the gathering fire piece that was psychedelic that you mentioned is a mm. symbol of that type of a thing to me. Because every time you know, I'm not somebody that sees angels in trees, but I am somebody that has like reasonably clear visions from time to time about what's happening in the background of like the spiritual domain of life and and any time that I've had any, any kind of vision about my hope for people in that place, it's always a table like this where we're sitting with you know, plates that are going around that are just equal and somebody puts something on the plate and they hand it along and somebody else puts something on the plate at the same time that somebody else is taking something out and it remains in this sort of this cyclical state of balance, which is, you know, just a nice metaphor for good wealth distribution, for good discourse, for universities that aren't just about producing workers and property value, but are about producing thinkers like it used to be about, you know, we're getting so utilitarian in uh, kind of technological fixations that it's sort of, we're, to me, we're sort of moving away from that a lot. Have you heard the... Um commencement speech that uh, David Foster Wallace did. Um, mm. It's all about it's no. all about critical thinking about mm. you know liberal arts degrees. Yeah, why um, we should keep the humanities? Yeah, yeah, just that you you go to do an art degree to mm. learn how to think critically. That's right, and it's and it's. It, and it's a vital compelling. rites of passage because there's no necessary guarantee of that being a part of your speech community growing up. You may or may not be around that with your parents and with your friends as a teenager. And the humanities, as a young person, when you get into that, you, there's the potential to encounter such a, an expansion of your worldview and your understanding of things that you're then qualified to actually go out in the world and be what you want to be and do what you want to mm. do and not just for the sake of becoming the biologist or becoming the marine scientist or the architect or whatever for the sake of getting the job and doing the thing, but that you've got the critical thinking to approach your life choices with a, a bigger backdrop, you know, with, a, with a, more of a sense of what's actually going on and what you're actually really participating in and therefore how you want to participate, which is all 
you know, um, you know, we've got a culture that there is no, there's no rites of passage in the sense of like, you know, oh, beyond, you know, uh, you know, the rites of passage that are specifically subscribed to gender stuff about, um, you know, female sexual awakening, male sexual awa- awakening, mm. you know, puberty, and and also I guess money go. Mm. Get the money. Yeah, yeah. And that's about as far, <clears throat> one way or another, it's, sort of, it's dealing with the material realities of maturing, whether that's through becoming sexually active or what you need to do to, to get the car so that you can be the student. Mm. But I don't know. I'm, I'm speaking very generally here, but I think that um, <clears throat> it's a critically important thing now for that to be something that has a connection to nature because we've always been so far away from that approach of, you know, going away and coming back in some way with some new insight. I mean, that's something I love when I was doing my um, my studies about Greek culture as part of my humanities and all of the old mythologies of the, the descent into the underworld and the confrontation with self and the new epiphany that's born out of whatever that process is about for you and then bringing back the insight from that self-confrontation in some kind of dark place that you can enrich in the village that you're participating in. <clears throat> It's a really old idea, you know, it's in Star Wars, it's in all sorts of things. But And in Indigenous culture, there's there's versions of that as well where you, you, you go away and you're expected to find something and then you, you come back and you share whatever you've found. But the common thing with all of the, the various interpretations of the, that I find is that it happens out in a wild and a dark and a scary place in some way so that you find some new bandwidth in your personality that's more more comfortable with how vulnerable you are, more comfortable with how brutal life actually is, more comfortable with being attuned to nature in a way that's not just about what it is as a thing and as an object, but as something that's actually talking to you and teaching you and encouraging you and like showing you how to be in some type of way that's very personal. And we don't get that, you know, Mm. if you just, if you grow up in your suburban house and you, you spend a lot of time doing things through screens and you've got this sort of like one place to another place to another place type of modular life. I mean, mean, that's what art is for me is this process of being able to um, reconnect with what's normal in a different way because you're always sort of going away in your mind, going Mm. into the studio, reconsidering it all from very unique critical approaches and then mm. coming back and discussing it in some so way within the, the art community. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it can be, you know, you're talking about having, you know, the, those moments are also sort of referred to as the dark night of the soul. You mm. know, there is no growth without deep challenge, without exactly. deep discomfort. Yep. And that's so much in the, what you're talking about, the cycle of, of nature, the cycle of life. And, um, Yep. I mean, we're, we're very reluctant now to engage with it because mm. it can feel very frightening. So exposing. I mean, we're so much of what we're analyzing now is connected to consumerism, which is connected to comfort, mm, and, and which is connected to our separation from nature. We only need that much comfort so we can survive in the face of the brutality of nature. That's where so much of the early appliances sort of came, not just because they were this new range of consumer items, you can all of a sudden, you can roll your laundry instead of mm. going down to the sewerage and trying to get the poo out of it. You can, you know, it's about that getting away from how yucky things are, mm. getting away from how 
unsanitary life is at its core basis. I mean. But also less and less use of the hands, I think, as mm. well. You know, I think that's been one of the the the, the true shames yeah. of ad- advancing is that we it, don't engage as right. much with our hands anymore. And I that feels like a, mm. we're so cut off when we're not yeah. touching. Well, there's a real, I mean. We've sort of touched on ideas of liminality and hypnosis just a little bit. And I've found, I mean, you know, when I came back to Tasmania after wrapping up a lot of university and playing in bands and starting to make some headway into the art scene and all that kind of real world stuff, I kind of, I, you know, ended up out in the bush through serendipity and started working at a sawmill for a while and just, you know, splitting firewood to make that extra 40 bucks that I needed and learning how to use all this crazy machinery. But... But more importantly, I was sort of around this um, this deep traditional type of materiality with all these guys that are, you know, just guys but love the forest and have a real kind of, even though they're pulling trees out of it, they've still got this sort of very kind way of doing that and they were trying to get into all of the forestry coops that forestry had gone through and get salvaged wood out of and make the most of and all this sort of like real kind of hunter-gatherer kind of stuff. And um, I just enjoyed being in an environment like that because it felt like it was outside of time. And as I was working on the wood, I felt like I was outside of time and it had this really different sort of atmosphere to how the normal art process does. But it's all about the hands. Mm. It's all about this thing of like learning new parts of yourself just because you've spent a few hours sanding something and really looking at the wood. Like Mm. it's sort of just all this old grounding kind of stuff. Mm, Absolutely. I think we need to move more into a tactile experience Mm. where we're getting further and further away from it as we progress. And evolution, it's hard to trace that. I mean, like the capitalist system has basically just stemmed out of the village-style economy where you've got the guy that can make the bread and can catch the fish and can do what needs to be done to sustain the group and he's good enough at it that he creates a surplus that he can can share with somebody. And now that's evolved through the centuries to the point that you've got, you know, Amazon using robotic sensors on people's arms to make sure they're being as efficient as they can while they're working in these crazy packing warehouses so that people can receive their goods. Like, and you're not responsible for somebody else's hands. The system is. You're not Mm. responsible for what those people have to do with their hands. The guy is. And there's all this sort of like this outsourcing of responsibility through the chain of distribution that goes on that sort of makes us forget that we're actually doing something that's like not good for a lot of people (laughs) (laughs) in a lot of different ways because we're not using our own hands. And if you're Mm. using your own hands more, you perhaps wouldn't need whatever that thing is that you're getting imported from China via Brazil, via America, via Australia, mm. kind of dealio, you know. So I think uh, the what's happened here today is that we've fixed it. More critical thinking and more mm. use, use your hands, of your everybody. hands. Yeah. Mm. You know, I, I chant about that a lot in my music too because I think it's actually really, it's a really sacred thing to be working with your hands in a certain mm. type of a way. I mean, not just in the sense of the quality of the, the quality of artisanship that you see in things. I mean, some of the cathedrals I saw in Europe, in Romania and Brazil, the Black Cathedral and in Vienna, these like things are just like testaments to the the mathematical genius of people that are using high intellect with high artisanship. Um and we haven't forgotten that. That's still mm. a part of us. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. You, you it's see, a muscle like, memory from generations. It's a specialist industry now. It's like the people that do that kind of thing are the people that are this, this sort of the hyper-specialised, rarefied types of people. 
mm. because we're not allowed to build our own houses anymore. We're not allowed to do a lot of the things that used to keep us connected to the the sweat of our own brow in a simple type of a way. I mean, you know, it trips me out no end that my old my old man, who's not that much older than me and time moves really quickly, was able to basically build a house with resourced materials in a very robust way that is still standing to this day with, you know, no real qualification as a builder whatsoever, just a few woodworking classes at school, yet he built his own house. If he tried to do exactly the same thing now, it would cost him $30,000 before he's even started, and that's what it cost him to build his house. It sounds like a simple little kind of, well, woe is society gripe, but that fundamental separation from the ability to build your own shelter according to your own skills being removed by litigation, liability and corporate mentality is to me basically an invasion on on the serenity of your own individuality. Because if I can't go, I want to do this and I think I've got the skills to do it and it's my responsibility to take care of that properly, somebody's divorcing me from my own sense of responsibility as a maker. And, you know, that's, that's to me, that's quite serious business. Absolutely. So we collage and we collect mm. rocks and we that's right, because that's do what the we've things been that we can left do. Left with as much as it. I mean, mm. sometimes, you know, in the more kind of, woe aspects of reflecting on the life of an artist you kind of you do feel like a bottom feeder of sorts because you're trying to reutilize the things that people don't care about you're trying to awaken people as much as you can to the interconnected nature of consumerism and mind and how you're thinking is how the world is and all this sort of stuff and you often just feel like you're sort of just that strange guy putting stuff up on the wall when you're really sort of trying to bang a drum (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it's interesting um i spoke to you before we started recording about um this section of this uh book uh where art belongs by chris kraus and she was talking um about a group of artists in la that uh created a tiny creatures gallery shared studio space. It was very awesome. communal. Sounds positively ecological. Yeah. I, I'm unfortunately not sustainable and another one bites the dust. Mm. But, uh, you know, in the um, when they were looking back on, on what had been achieved, there was a man, Paul Gelman, and he talked about how many of the artists that exhibited there were collage artists and he Mm. had thoughts on it. He said, um, Mm. good collage assemblage involves inserting one language into another, Mm. juxtaposing and playing with contrasting imagery from the culture at large. From data, though, the punk era, one finds elements of transgression and mystery created through putting disparate images together. Mm. You know, and he he does, he goes on to say, Being a good collage assemblage artist requires being a good scavenger. Mm. As you walk down the filthy streets outside of your hovel, you are probably feeling depressed because uh, for for one, you live in a hovel or you are affecting an air of the disaffected or you are experiencing a fallout from some drug you've been binging on the past weekend, week, month. Use your downward gaze as an opportunity to see the beautiful detritus that our polluted city offers, begin to see reoccurring themes, mm. colours, shapes in the pieces of trash. If you're attracted to something, it is because in some way it represents you. Mm. That's a big part of what I like about the act of collage is that it keeps you in rhythm with 
signifiers and intuitive synchronicities and things that are crossing your path because perhaps you were supposed to see it and that's why you're resonating with it. I mean, a lot of the things in the body of work, uh, well, there were four large um, sort of half-stretched canvas pieces and they were done in in Manly when I was, you know, forced to come back from Europe because of COVID and flee the scene and staying in New South Wales for a few months. And I was in a pretty mixed state of mind at the time, having to sort of collapse all those dreams and return back and trying to make sense of what it was all about. And the debris and detritus of this time down at the Manly studio was absolutely inspiring even though it was a really challenged time because it was sort of helping remind me of the unconditionality of meaning that you know even though a lot of my kind of expectations of myself had sort of collapsed in a way that's way beyond control because of a global pandemic the way that the paint peels off the wall at the manly surf lifesaving club is still a beautiful thing that i resonate with and the the trash that's on the ground as i'm watching you know human behavior kind of do what it likes to do in all sorts of different ways it it sort of it keeps you in that network of everything being significant and you know that you shouldn't dismiss anything because it might all have some value in Mm. some way and i think it's a really positive style of thinking as much as collage being a great way of inserting new meanings into existing meanings which is of course the other aspect of what i love about collage i mean a guy that i kind of vaguely know and deeply love popped into the studio and the first word that came out of his mouth was punk and i (laughs) I love hearing that because like punk in its original form is what the dada was in its original form is what a lot of other groups have been all through history which is Mm. iconoclastic they're like i don't believe the image that you're giving me about society so i'm going to smash that up and rearrange that and send that back to you as an assemblage because i do not accept the ideology that you're pouring into me in one way or another and i think there's something better than that and I, i love that ability to pull new meaning out of something that's potentially quite destructive. Mm. Yeah, it's this reconfiguration, this um this sort of manipulating of context that mm. I personally find really fascinating and I know that yeah. that's something that I like to work with um in my own practice is just there's something very satisfying about mm. really you know, excuse my language, but really fucking up context. Mm, absolutely. Distorting it. and Because and it teaches how floating a thing that actually is, which mm. then teaches how much we're inventing context constantly through the illusions yes. that pass across the surface of the ego. We are inventing interpersonal contexts. We're invert, inventing interpretive contexts. We're inventing trauma contexts, like even things that have a very real basis one way or another. The fact that we hold that narrative in our mind is an act of kind of self-producing our own fiction and ideas about a lot of mm. about a lot of stuff because to learn about a floating context is just to learn about the fact that you're you're making up all of your own thinking in one way or another <laughs> even the stuff that's given to you in this very pre-assembled you should do that type form that we get a lot of yeah. oh gosh it just it's, it leaves you spinning i think well, that's where I make from. I basically make from the spin. I mean, the spiral is a form that's been coming up in conversation a lot since I've been here. One with a new friend that I've made that's got some origins in New Zealand and the Maori. Maori. I can't do it as as he does, but the Maori people have a lot of, um, you know, deep ways of interpreting that image. Mm. Um, and we were talking about it in terms of good conversation and how that often feels like a spiral because you meet the person and go up and then they meet you and then they go up and you're sort of in this 
upwardly spiraling kind of sensation, um, which the futurists talked about too, funnily enough. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the, the sorry, certain... I've only had an hour sleep, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh, yes, circles, spirals. I mean, that is something that is so evident in nature, just in the, the most basic way yeah, of the yeah. life, the death, rebirth and cycle, you know. Yeah, and that's life circle, mm. absolutely. And mm. and the what I was originally trying to talk about with that too, to relate it to collage, is that spinning out feeling where you realise, oh, my goodness, everything could relate to everything. Yeah. I can create new <laughs> Everything's connected. Nothing's actually that fixed really at all. I can just play with this as yeah. much as I want to, which is then like that sort of that that liberating thing of feeling like you're actually in the genesis of your own thought, not just sort of responding to the production mm. of others. And yes. that's like I think that's what most people need really one way or another is that sense of their own freedom of thought because even if we don't fathom that that's not the case, it's a painful thing to feel that contraction of your own openness whether you're cognizant of that or not. Mm, mm. I mean, I know I feel like that when I get close to things. It's like, oh, man, why am I letting that happen to me? I'm becoming all hard about something that I could just become yes, just, just as diffusive as my collage is mm. about. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what has your experience in Queenstown been like? Been like? Mm. You know, we were talking about um, you are going to go and have a look at a property mm. after this. Mm. Mm. Uh, you, when you first came here, you were talking about, um, you know, I love, I loved what you said. You said that you were in the middle of a love affair. Yeah, yeah, and it's a long-term love affair. You know, as I sort of touched on in the artist talk that I did at the show yesterday, it's sort of like I travelled here a lot as a kid with my father. He was doing all the sign writing in the area and this sort of, this um, this infusion of how um, sensual the sensory world of paint actually was was something that I was really starting to take on in those early years of hanging out with Dad when he's still he's got the paints out and they're all knocking around in the back of the truck and <laughs> it's all like you know the fluids of paint it's all oh, so coming exciting coming back to and sound as well that's yeah particular and I'd often be traveling in the back of the soundtrack no. with the paints and the sound. <laughs> <laughs> So this really kind of, you know, sensory overwhelmation that was combined with being in this place because we were down here so much doing signs and stuff. Mm. You know, and the, the, my favourite parts of that, the early parts, I can barely remember because um, I love that part of memory where it's still in that purely creative child state that hasn't rigidified at all yet really and is still just like, you know, playing with its own assemblages just naturally by the state of development that it's in. And I was given a piece of peacock oil then and I think it was in Queenstown. I'm not even too sure. It might have been at Zine. I just remember looking at this thing and just being like, what on God's green earth is that? And again, <laughs> and I that's love that such feeling. a psychedelic colour, exactly. peacock, peacock oil. It so is, oh. yeah. Because, and it, to me, it just, it was saying to my personality, that rock, that there is more on heaven and earth than can be fathomed. And mm. like this world is a strange and beautiful place, which, you know, I've carried with me for my whole life. And I think just being so entranced by that thing was a tiny event as it was, was a, a really big part of, of that because so often I was mesmerized. Mm. The small, the small moments. It is, which is really interesting about the, how the sensitivity of memory actually works. It's not just that it's like, 
playing with things innately but just by looking at them you know every time we draw up a memory it sort of goes through our, our dream parts of cognition a little cognition a little bit and we sort of modify it a bit and maybe connect another little bit of memory to it and then maybe connects to another little half remembered thing and we come up with some kind of god-awful synthesized frankenstein <laughs> of memory just naturally we're all doing it yeah and which again has negative impact on context Mm. You know, because it really reframes the way that we receive information, process information, mm. and the brain keeps trying to make sense of something. So it's connecting everything together. Yeah. Just it's, but it's not. Well, I think I mean, what is real? The first piece that I well, it's a bad idea, but the first piece I sold was to a guy that walked in who'd somehow heard about the fact that I was there digitally and was excited to have a look at what Lava Lodge was up to, which was a real trip. Yeah. But the the drawing that he bought was like it had this circuit in it that's a guitar pedal uh, that was the Boss GT2 Metal Zone. That and this pedal had actually gone viral for a while on the internet as something that was a part of a, a 5G COVID mind control chip conspiracy wow. of some description. When it's really just a really nice fuzz pedal, actually. <laughs> an average fuzz pedal <laughs> for the record um, and and I was just fascinated by the fact that this this information overload that so many people are experiencing where it's like it's dissolving their sense of belief they're losing mm. their faith in institutions the tide of centuries of political corruption and exploitation and everybody that's been getting away with it since the beginning of time in one way or another and they're sort of like they're losing their sense of potentially this is this is never solid their sense of um how do I draw meaning out of this much information? Mm. Because one thing is contrasting with another thing is conflicting with another thing and it can just turn into this sort of like this digital this digital disco nightmare of just like not knowing what to think in amongst all the flashing lights of half information that we're sort of scrolling through. And it's like it's this sort of it has that potential for us to start sort of um, emulating in how we think the way that our digital uh, devices think which is you know not really that much at all and just sort mm. of just not being able to sort it all out yeah god mm. and i mean you know we're here talking about collage i mean every time you pick up your phone it's an insane collage of yeah. stuff it's like oh here's the the 3d printing thing that you've been marketed to which sits next to the sort of amorphic looking sculpture from america that we know that you're interested in that relates to the permacultural interests that you've got that relates to the la 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 and you're sort of looking at this sort of this this profile of your own information, it's, it's a funny thing. You know, it's it a funny is. Thing. It is really, it is really bizarre. It is to see this. It, it is like a reflection, but it, it's cold. It's cold bits mm. of information. You see Yeah. This. I think we are analog. Mm. This is why we like our hands. This is why we like sound. Mm. This is why we like meditation. This is why we like yoga. We're analog creatures. In one way or another, like we, we respond to frequencies and vibrations at the very core of how we exist. The universe is mapped out with maths that relate to how we work. And like it's all part of this great big kind of like mathematical kind of cohesive picture between the humans and the cosmos and the planet. And now we're absolutely, you know, to relate it to the collage thing, splicing in this whole new interpretive medium of everything happening in binary and everything happening in a different type of number system. And it's sort of going on a bit of a tangent here, but we're kind of like creating a new world on top of our world in, mm. in an interesting time. We're superimposing this new digital layer over the top of all of the existing systems that I think are potentially a bit more intelligent than what we're coming up with in Silicon Valley, you know. Gosh, that's such a, that's <clears throat> what you're saying. It really evokes a strong, strong imagery. You know, you can see it, this, this, 
I'm totally freeballing that. Layer, plastic layer over everything. Well, we do have to wrap Mm. up. Mm. This has been wonderful. Good. I could could do it for ages. Yeah, it's Mm. fantastic. Can, um, what have you got coming up? It seems the future is still a bit uncertain. Well, I've got a show at Moonshed, which is run by Josh Sanderspudo, who's an absolute legend. Absolutely. Um, So that'll be a nice little thing that a lot of what I've got will translate into. Um, nothing to find from there, but mm. I'm, I'm actually looking to be playing some music again as much as anything. So it's been a long oh. time since I did any gigs. So, yeah, and I've got an album to record, so I'll be getting busy with that. Yeah, and well. And then just, just plugging away with the art thing, really. I've, you'll have to come back and uh, maybe play at Cuba. Yeah, uh, I'd, I would love to. Yeah. Yeah, I would love great. to. Did a little improv thing there last night that was quite fun. Oh, fantastic. Mm. And then um, in terms of where people can maybe see your work, yeah. not in – in the real world, maybe on... Yeah, if you just go to my Instagram and go to Lava Lodge, mm-hmm. Lava Like the Volcano Lodge, which is a slightly obscure Twin Peak reference that mm. also relates to Timothy Hodge. Um, just it rhymes. People like things that rhyme. They're not going to remember my name, but they might remember Lava Lodge. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that, what is alliteration, the double L. Mm, mm. And I've got a website as well, so just timothyhodge.cargo.site that you can get to all of the music, all of the sculptures, all of the paintings through, which has been lovingly composed by my beautiful wife. That's wonderful. Helps finish off a lot of things that I'm not very good at. (laughs) (laughs) And she's been here with you um, during the residency. That's fantastic. Yeah, and she's been resonating with my love affair too, Queenstown. Oh, that's Mm. great. Well, you know, it's not rocket science. It's somewhere that you can afford that's close to nature. And that's a very, very, very rare thing these days. Mm. Well, again, thank you so much for doing this with me. It's been wonderful. My pleasure, Emily. This is Local. This project would not be possible without the incredible community of folks who make time to chat nor would it be possible without the tremendous support of the West Coast community. If this episode offered you something good, please consider rating the show via Apple Podcasts. The podcast is produced by Carter Pierce and myself. Digital media is supported by Tess Gilfeder. Our artwork was made by Gigi Gortz. The podcast is funded in part by the Regional Arts Fund. For more information on the podcast and its guests, please go to localthepodcast.com or localthepodcast on Facebook and Instagram.